Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome to our spring series, where we feature intimate conversations taken from our In the Waiting Room with live events. This episode, we feature Catherine Mannix. Welcome to our In the Waiting Room with series. Today in our waiting room is Dr. Catherine Mannix. Catherine Mannix hails from across the pond from UK and has been a palliative care physician for over three decades. She is the author of this beautiful book, With the End in Mind, which is a Sunday Times bestseller. Uh, she's been a longtime advocate for better end-of-life care, and we're so pleased to have her joining us today. So welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much, Sian. Lovely to be here. And I can see some of my Canadian friends' names in the, in the audience. Lovely to see you, everyone. I must say, congratulations on this beautiful book. I know it sort of started with this, uh, this BBC video, which is a couple minutes, but it's watched millions of times. If people haven't seen it, they should check it out. But the book is just like, you know, really is a testament to the, you know, the, your work and everything you stand for. Um, it's stunning. And I love how you weave all these stories from the bedside patients, families, providers um, who are living with and dying uh, from various chronic diseases. So I guess I'd love to just start with, with your book. And what was the main message that you really wanted to put out there by spending all this time writing it? You know, I, I had a grandmother who was born in 1900. And so she'd looked after family when they were dying at home because they were not a wealthy family. They came from a, a not very wealthy part of Liverpool in England. Um, and her life expectancy at birth was around about 50 years. So I became a consultant in 1995. And mathematicians will know that my grandmother who was still alive by then was therefore 95 years old. And we were chatting about, you know, palliative care and looking after dying people. And she said to me, one of the things she was really concerned about was that her children hadn't ever seen anybody die. She'd been widowed in her thirties. Her oldest child had died of diphtheria when he was seven before two of his siblings were born. And since then there had been no close family bereavements. The NHS had begun in 1948, when she was 48. Um, life expectancies had changed out of all proportion over the course of the 20th century. And what my grandmother was explaining to me was that the generation behind hers, my parents' generation, had no familiarity with dying. And so this is what I recognized in my work and what I'm sure you recognize in your work that everybody's frightened of what they think dying is going to be like because they haven't sat beside someone who is doing ordinary dying. And I think talking about it as ordinary dying is a helpful concept. And so they frighten themselves from what they've seen on soap operas and in cinema and in newspaper reports because obviously those have to be things that sell papers or keep people watching the TV. Um, so we've got all of these really bad references about dying and very little personal experience of it. So what I wanted to do was give people ordinary dying back. How, how did my Nana know about it? Well, she sat at deathbeds. She took cups of tea in and out of the room. She wiped people's brows. She changed bed linen. She did the, the laundry. So what I wanted to do is just invite people, come, come and sit here with me. 
and let's look at how this person and the family around them are living this last part of this precious life. Um, so really, it was kind of just to open a window into ordinary dying in a completely non-medical way, as though this was a member of your family, that you know enough about this person from what I've told you to mind what happens to them and then watch with me as we watch what unfolds. Yeah. And, and what has the reaction been from, you know, from people on social media, or from people that you're meeting who have read your book? Because I feel like you're exactly right. That's such a, a missing piece in our death denying society. Mm. Um, have you had positive reaction? I know it's a Sunday Times bestseller, but personally, like, what have you sort of heard? It's, it, it's been extraordinary. It's been absolutely extraordinary. I've had letters, messages, emails sent to newspapers who've done interviews or book reviews. People have contacted me through the publisher, through my agent. You know, those are sentences I never thought I was going to say when I went to medical school. Um, I've had hundreds and hundreds of messages and, and they, they are very, very similar themes. So the first one is people, bereaved people who have been at a deathbed and they've seen that automatic reflex breathing cycle that we recognize so well, the person completely unaware of their throat, not at all troubled by their breathing, but making some unusual noises, um, maybe a bit of bubbling, maybe a bit of clicking, maybe breathing out with a bit of a sigh. If, you, if you've never seen that before, how would you know that that isn't person groaning, trying to speak, struggling to breathe? Of course, that's what you're going to think. You love this person. You've never seen this before. So hundreds of messages from people whose bereavement was suddenly transformed by understanding that, oh, one, one, one lady said to me, I understand now my mum wasn't struggling. She wasn't drowning. She was deeply unconscious. She actually had a five-star Hilton death. Yes. Um, somebody else who said they'd been in therapy for a decade since their mother died for post-traumatic stress disorder. And she said, I, I finished reading the story about the French lady, which is a story of me describing, me hearing my boss describing ordinary mm -hmm. dying. I finished reading that story last night. I slept through the night last night for the first time in 10 years. And just those two stories alone would have made it worth doing that. But there are hundreds of them. And what it shows me is people don't know what's going on and they are traumatized by their misunderstanding of it. So not only do we fail to explain to people what to expect beforehand, we also fail to explain to them in the moment what it is that's going on. I've had letters from people saying, I'm dying. I have an illness. I, I won't see another Christmas or, you know, I'm going to die sometime in the next several months. Um, I'm using your book to talk to my family about what's going to happen and how do we get ourselves organized. So a lot of the things that are in your waiting room revolution about taking charge, making sure that the family and the ripple effects are, are looked after as well. Um, noticing that different people have different coping styles so how to not bump into each other while we're doing that um, but then a huge correspondence from healthcare professionals now I didn't write it for us I wrote it for everybody else I was almost kind of reaching past the healthcare professionals who aren't having those conversations to say to everybody else which again is exactly what your revolution is about hey everybody this is what it's about this is what it's like you can do this, you can find out about this, you can have support while you're doing it. 
it's not going to be your best day, but it won't be your worst day probably either. And what's happened is that healthcare professionals now are saying, I never thought about describing it like that before. I think I could probably use words like that. Or I get people saying, I used your words. Oh, I worry a bit about that because I don't like scripts. I like to think that we use principles and then use our own words. But I used words like your words. I described dying the kind of way that you described dying. And the patient was so grateful and the family was so pleased. And now they all know what they're aiming for. And isn't that just fantastic? So lots, I've been overwhelmed by the correspondence. I didn't expect it. And it's been fantastic. That's so, I, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, and I think how we, uh, both my co-host Sammy and I, you know, we connect to this, this, this mission and all the things you talk about. And what, you know, what we were trying to do was go upstream. Mm. Um, and not only, at least in Canada, people often get it near the very end, palliative care. They, if they're even lucky enough to meet a palliative care physician like yourself, sometimes they, they sort of don't even know to ask for that or that it's available. And so we wanted to go upstream for people who didn't maybe uh, to really have this approach of palliative care right from the beginning, because it's really applicable throughout the entire illness journey. And I just wondered um, maybe some of your reflections on um, maybe just the podcast in general, but our, our real goal was that it wasn't only tied to this idea of this recognition of, of that death is imminent. Yeah, 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 absolutely right. And I, I use um, an analogy that doesn't work quite so well in North America of midwifery. It's usual for babies to be delivered by midwives in the United Kingdom. And if things are not going so well, the obstetrician might have to attend. But most, mostly we are looked after by midwives throughout our pregnancy and through our delivery as well. And I see that end of life care is very similar that very early on a midwife is explaining what will happen and how we're going to manage it as it's happening and then checking that you stay healthy that your baby is healthy so by the time you get to giving birth we know everything we might need to worry about about you and your baby which way round it is which way up it is where the placenta is so now we can do delivery really safely and we know if we have to do anything extraordinary because we've walked through with you from very early on from upstream yes. and I think that you know palliative care is analogous if we're working with you during your illness journey helping to minimize your symptoms maximize your independence wrap all of the care decisions around what matters most to you and that will be different from the person with the same illness who I'm seeing in the clinic after you, absolutely individualized and tailored to you. Then by the time we get towards the very end of your journey, when perhaps there are fewer disease modifying treatments available for you, or you've decided that the balance of the side effects of treatment now is not worth it for your own quality of life. We're not strangers who come in at that point. We've walked with you that journey. We know you, we understand your illness. We know which way round you are and which way up you are, which things to worry about. And we will continue to walk with you now through living the very last part of your life as well. So it's not an add-on. And isn't it sad, Sien, that with, I think it was 2010 that that research paper from Massachusetts General looking at lung cancer patients demonstrated and maybe listeners won't know this so this was a cohort of I think 150 people newly diagnosed with lung cancer so average life expectancy about nine months and 
half of them had the usual treatment, best possible treatment available, and the other half had exactly that, but they also were introduced to the palliative care team. I think they changed the name of the palliative care team to the supportive care team so they wouldn't frighten the patients. And what they found was that the group of people who had the usual treatment had the usual outcome and they lived on average another nine months. And the people who had this additional, and the worry was the cost of the additional care, you know, the insurance companies worrying about the cost, of course. Um, those people registered less depression, less pain, less nausea, more mobility, higher motivation, less anxiety and worry. But they also opted out of the anti-cancer treatments generally earlier, had fewer hospital admissions. And now we're all thinking, oh, well, if, you know, if they stopped having treatment, did they die sooner? No, on average, they lived three months longer. So a whole 30 percent longer than the people who had best standard treatment. So we know that palliative care, we know that keeping people as well as they can be during their illness journey enables them not just to live well, but in some people even to live longer. Why are we still having this conversation? Yeah, I, I, I think it is, I, I, this is what my research is about. And, and we think about this. And you know, when I talk to patients and families, I have to ask you this because we hear it all the time. Uh, the healthcare providers say, well, it's the patients and families who don't want us to give up hope. And when I talk to patients and families, albeit maybe different ones, <laughs> they say, well, it was, I asked, but the doctors, they don't want to talk there. They didn't want to go there. I asked a couple of ways and they kept shutting me down. So I would love to hear from your experience like there's a disconnect here. What is happening? Why is there a disconnect? Is, I don't want to say it's one or the other. They're probably both kind of right, but, but yeah, I don't it, know from your perspective, what's really happening. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting. I think that we are anxious about upsetting each other and to discuss the fact that this illness eventually will shorten your life, whether it's a neurological illness or cancer or heart failure, whatever it is, that feels like, oh, am I really going to say that in my clinic? How long have I got? How upset will they get? Will I be able to deal with it? What will the other people in the waiting room think if this person comes out sobbing? And we kind of catastrophize. And our experience, we know our experience is that when you take the lid off and talk to somebody, and my question usually is, listen, I want this treatment and the way we look after you to be the best it can be for you. So what would really help me is to know, do you have a worse dread about how things might be? Do you have a best hope about the way things might be? Because what I'd like to do is try and avoid your worst dread the best we can and make things the most like your best hope they can be. So we're introducing hope into the first palliative care conversation. And most people just go, oh, thank God we're talking about this. You know, you see their shoulders drop. Yes, it's sad. Yes, it's difficult. Yes, it's emotional. But actually people don't remain as distressed for the rest of their life as they are during a conversation in which we have bad news. We've all had bad news. In our lives we've all had a day a week a month after that bad news when we carry it like a stone and it influences everything and gradually gradually we learn to live our best life including that news and our patients aren't just patients they are people with all that resilience inside them and we do them an injustice when we withhold information Everything you said is exactly what my co-host, <laughs> Dr. Winemaker, says all the time. Like almost, you know, it's like it's like a 
paraphrase of this idea that we can walk two roads and uh, hope evolves, but it has to be based in realistic hope. And I will kick myself after if I don't ask, have you listened to some of our episodes and what, overall, what are, what's your impression of what? And we talked a bit about it, but. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely love it. I absolutely love it. And I'm, I'm posting about it on my social media. So people over here will pick it up as well. I'm interested, there is a difference in our language though, that I am very explicit about talking about dying and death. And I'm interested to listen to the way you infer it without being so linguistically precise about it in the podcast. And I'm quite keen that we learn to use our D words with enormous compassion because we know that people can use euphemisms without compassion at all. And that actually, I don't think it's the words, I think it's the connection that really matters. And I completely agree that. I think we, what we have learned is there is a part of the population, my, my sense is there's part of the population that is open to talking about it. And I think it depends on your illness and where you're at. And we are really talking upstream, upstream, like maybe right at diagnosis, maybe after the first month of a bombshell diagnosis, now you have to make treatment plans. Well, you should have customized your order. You should be thinking about what is it that I want? What is this treatment? You should be asking lots of questions. Many people don't. And so a lot of our, I would say a lot of our keys are not necessarily connected to uh, these treatments might cure you, might buy you lots and lots and lots of time, but we don't know. So I think some of our keys are about that. As you move further on, as things sort of progress for many uh, advanced chronic illnesses, um, then I think we need to start using, you know, adult words and really talking where it is. So I have not, I think because we are so upstream, we really wanted to capture more of the population. But I think this, this divide happens when we don't talk about it at all. And so I feel like we were trying to use words that would allow people wherever they were at to be able to introduce this concept, but yeah. when the time is right, they would then be able to see, you know, they were high enough up to be able to see, well, you know what, this, at some point, this is, there's going to be no more treatments that are going to work. And so what do I want the next three years to look like, not just the next two months. Mm. And so maybe there's different language at three years than two months, but I, I still think it's a palliative care approach. Maybe they would never meet a palliative care doctor at that time, but the principles of palliative care should come in and how do they ask for it and talk about it? I think they, might need to maybe even guide some of their medical colleagues. With, yeah, with I, language, I so. think that's absolutely right. When I first came into palliative care in 1986, we thought we would educate ourselves out of a role within a decade. And of course, the body of knowledge carried on building and now it is here a specialty in its own right. So it, it isn't that we're a, you know, a primary care physician or a general physician with an interest. We're trained for four years entirely in palliative medicine as our postgraduate uh, training. Um, And I don't see that we're going to be able to give it all back, but we can constantly be cascading that knowledge back so that it's, it's, it's a bit like a, like a pyramid, isn't it? Or you were talking about a mountain before we started the tape um, where we few palliative care specialists at the top of this pyramid we'll see a small caseload of really complicated difficult conundrums at all points along the diagnosis spectrum including people being treated with curative intent but also we're teaching and supervising and advising our clinician colleagues who are experts in their own right in other areas so they can apply palliative care principles to their whole caseload 
And what you're working for and what I'm working for is that even beyond that, the whole population, the huge base of our pyramid is better empowered to ask their doctors, their nurses, their healthcare professionals to customize their care in a way that suits them best. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As you've been sort of reflecting back and going through all these stories, has there been something that you learned or surprised you from writing this book or, or, or giving all these talks that maybe you didn't know before and made you think about it in a different way? I think probably lots of things. One of the things that's been really interesting for me is I, I've done some traveling as a consequence of, of this writing. Um, and it's really humbling to meet people who have never lost the wisdom in the first place. Uh, so meeting people in uh, South America, meeting uh, people providing healthcare for Maori people in New Zealand, and the family tradition, sort of the, the, the Maori tradition that if a healthcare decision needs to be made, then the whole whanau will make that decision. So that's the extended family group uh, to the point that they wouldn't even call it my care plan, really, except that the law requires it to be my care plan. But for a traditional Maori family, it would be our care plan. And that's exactly right, isn't it? That yeah. it's all of us responsible for each other to help to make healthcare better. Yeah, the community connection. Wow, yeah. that's fantastic. I like to ask, we're almost in the end, but um, you know, we, this whole, our mission started with this idea that we, patients and families told us, I wish you had told us that sooner. So I'd love, what advice do you have when you meet uh, uh, for patients and families who are starting out their sort of illness journey with a serious illness? Do you have any advice? What would you say? Mm, what do I say? Well, generally, the first thing is we have to explain what palliative care is about. And I normally have to say very explicitly, a lot of people think we're about end of life care. And actually, we do meet quite a lot of people who are near the end of their lives. But that's not why we're here. We're here because of the pain you've had, the worry you told your doctor about, the additional stress in your family of trying to help you when you are the carer for this multiply disabled child in your house and we want to give you this additional support so again it's about tailoring that that conversation but i you know explicit and go there and say you know people quite often are frightened to meet us are you one of them and they look a bit sheepish and say, oh, i was a little bit worried when they said the palliative care team was coming yeah great thanks for telling me that okay how much information do you like to have because I prefer to be honest with people, but I don't want to overwhelm you. Some people like a lot. Some people want enough to be going on with. I had one guy who said to me, if it's really bad news, doctor, just tell my wife. Gorgeous. Um, okay, so now we know that we're going to work with each other. Um, and usually also fairly early on, we do have the conversation about what ordinary dying is like. Because once people know that you can even talk about that, then we completely relax. This person, this team is really going to level with me or at least offer me the opportunity for it to be level. And now we can completely trust each other. Mm -hmm. Isn't that, it's so interesting. Sammy talks about renewing your vows and this idea that I will be, yeah. it's a commitment that I will be here with you all the way to the end. And because I'm talking about what it looks like at the end, you know that I'm going to be there with you and journey yeah. with you or be part of that. And that that renewal of a commitment is so critical to the, the trust you said. And also just like you said, the it's not so much relaxing, but it's the trust. It's really this, uh, that sacred trust of between patients. 
We're yeah. almost, this is my last question. I know we're a bit over time, but we've talked so much about your book with the end in mind. And it, like, if you haven't read it, it's amazing. You know, you should get it right now. But I know that you just submitted your manuscript of your second book. And so I, uh, when is that coming out? Tell us a little bit. I, I did. So um, the second book is actually a response to that correspondence. The number of people who say, okay, so I'm convinced now I have to have that conversation. Where do I start? I can't get my adult children to let me have the conversation. Um, my mum closes me down every time I try and ask her what her preferences are. And then lots of other questions that are not about end of life conversations, but just about those conversations that matter. And they matter so much that they call upon our tenderness. So this book is about those tender conversations. And I think very often we think that what needs to happen is that we need to give somebody a really good talking to when actually the thing that really makes a difference is to give somebody just the most tender listening to. So the book is about those tender conversations and it's called Listen and it will ah. be out in the UK and the Commonwealth apart from Canada in September and I'm still waiting for a North America publisher so if anybody's anybody can pull any strings let us know. Yeah, please do. <laughs> Catherine, so thank you so much for joining us. We, we went a little bit over time, but I think people don't mind. Um, we've had so much to talk about. We'd love to have you again back in the fall. And um, yeah, thank you so much. We'd thank love to have you come back to Canada and do a book tour with us for sure. That would be absolutely lovely. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Best of luck to you and Sammy. This is such, such an important project. I really wish you every success with it. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, principal of Clarity Hub. Please go to our website to join in the conversation, waitingroomrevolution.com.